All you big and burly men who roll the trucks along, you better listen. You'll be thankful when you hear my song. You have really got it made if you're hauling goods any place on earth but those Hainesville woods. It's a stretch of road up north in Maine that's never. Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Stephen King Cast, one man's musings on the works of Stephen King. Each week, I'll review one entry in the bibliography of Stephen King in the chronological order of publication, and this week, I am examining. A bad adaptation of a good marriage. I'm gonna cut straight to the the chase on this one. It's not a very good adaptation, and the story that I'm talking about here is um, it's I, I guess the the crown jewel of the uh, in the collection Full Dark No Stars, which I reviewed last episode. And I know that there was a, a movie out there for um, a good marriage, which I remember when the Remember when the, uh, the the first poster came out for the A Good Marriage? I had just started the Stephen King cast, and it's like it was a great picture, and I got excited for it. And it's the the his and hers towels in the bathroom, and one of them has the the, the you know the, the bloody handprint on it. And I was I said, oh my god, that's great! That's a great visual to really represent what this story is of the the everyday and the mundane of just Stephen King examining marriage, and the the bloody handprint just says it all. And, you know, I, I, I looked forward to it. Then I didn't hear anything about it other than it came out. And then I knew that that was not a good sign. And I, I held off on, on watching it until very, very recently. And here we are. I'll, I'll get into my review uh, in a little bit. But I think that in, in last week's review of Full Dark No Stars, I, I hope that I made it clear that I think that A Good Marriage is an incredible novella i think that it is king firing on all cylinders it's him speaking about just the realities of life and and marriage and of course he puts a spin on it but it's all all filtered through truth which is just great um and even though he writes the screenplay for the adaptation the adaptation fails in every which way where the the story succeeded. But like I said, I'll get to it in much more detail. In the meantime, I'm going to read a listener email. Um, And everyone, I think that you know that I love getting emails. So if you uh, haven't written in yet, feel free to do so at stephenkingcast at yahoo.com. And um, let's see, we have Shane who writes, Hi, Stephen Kingcast. As I am behind by a year on your podcast, I may be way late with this observation. I have not actually seen or read Apt Pupil. My observation comes from my own cursory knowledge and having listened to your musings on both the movie and the novella back-to-back. I believe that the key to unlocking the movie is actually found in something that you said in the review of the novella. The story is exploring the creation of a serial killer. It's a popular notion that repressed homosexuality can result in horrendous things. Most famously, experts point to Jeffrey Dahmer. Whether right or not, experts theorize that Dahmer's downhill slope towards the monster he became started with repressed homosexuality. This started to come out in the killings of animals for pleasure and ended with the horrible and unspeakable things that he did to human victims. When we take into consideration Brian Singer's open bisexuality, this film's emphasis on the sexuality of the characters and a threat of a still-alive Todd Bowden, it paints a picture. I think the director is using this story as a warning and condemnation of these aspects of American culture. Personally, I find theories which absolve a monster like Dahmer or even part of the personal responsibility for his crimes troubling, but I do think this is the lesson that we are supposed to learn. 
thanks again for the good work, Shane. Shane, I think that you're onto something. Um, you're close to something, and and maybe I'm just misreading here the the, the email itself. But I take it more very much as a message. I, I, I think that you're right that um, this was something that was discussed with Dahmer, but I am not a psychologist. I'm not a psychi- uh, psychiat- psychiatrist. I'm not a psychiatrist. I'm not a FBI profiler or anything, but I, I think that there is a clear distinction between repressed homosexuality and um, and just being a, a, a sociopath, someone that just does not have uh, feelings of empathy towards towards someone else. Um, but I think that what Brian Singer is going for and what you're alluding here to in your email is that it's a that what he's saying here it, it is it is a warning it is a condemnation it is it is a it's a message it's a an allegory for what what really happens that when you're able to when you are forced to repress who you are it's never going to turn out good and he explores um, through metaphor what what could happen i don't think that anyone's saying that if you repress your sexuality or any aspect of of who you are you're going to wind up turning into a serial killer but that's that's the nature of fiction um but i think that you're definitely onto something there uh thank you for writing and then we have brett who writes hello again i wrote you an email a while back and i'm still not sure if you read it on your show or not because i have not yet gotten up on to date uh, on on our apps i am currently about to listen to rose matter but considering i just discovered your podcast a little while ago and have been listening in order starting with carrie consider it a compliment that i'm already up to rose matter as I probably said in my previous email, I just recently finished a Chronological King reread of my own. Now I can look people in the eyes and said, yes, I have read everything King has ever written from Carrie in 1974 through Finders Keepers in 2015. Now I just need to wait for Bizarre of Bad Dreams. Anyway, I was a bit dismissive of the whole Dark Tower saga when I did my Chronological thing, but then something happened. Since finishing my King Fest, I found myself reflecting on the madness and lunacy and general um, WTFness of the whole saga and smiling whenever I think of it. Then, all your thoughts and insights on the Dark Tower inspired me to sit down and read the whole thing start to finish with no breaks in between. See, when I did King Fest, I would read a DT novel when it came up, sort of like you're doing. I had The Gunslinger in 1982 and The Drawing of the Three in 1987 and The Wastelands in 1991. So, aside from the last three books that all came out in a row, there was always these big gaps in between the books. On one hand, this was good because I was able to pay attention on how King, King's non-DT books connected to that universe. But on the other hand, I think it sort of killed the momentum because every time I hit a DT book, it'd be like, what happened in the last one? Oh, yeah, right. However, so far the experience is very different and much better. To be an uber-completist, I began with the 1982 Gunslinger and followed immediately with the 2003 Gunslinger. Doing it so close together made it easier for me to spot the changes and differences. And I gotta tell you, I'd recommend the 1982 one over the 2003 one to a new reader, no matter how much George Lucas tampering Kin did to try and make it uh, make part one fit in with parts two through seven better. And then I immediately jumped into the drawing of the three. I finished that last night, and now I'm working on The Wastelands. Reading them this way, for me, plays much better, and I'm suddenly enjoying the saga as a whole a lot more. Because I feel it's building momentum, and it's not being interrupted by five or six years of other King books, you know? I'll report back after I finish the saga to see how it feels reading as one giant eight-piece book series with no gaps in between. Here's one random thing I wanted to note, and I'm noting this with love, even though it sounds like a criticism. Have you noticed that King is sort of obsessed with bodily functions like pee and poop? On one hand, I find it kind of endearing because it keeps his stories grounded in reality. 
that he'll describe a character pooping or farting or whatever, but sometimes I notice that when he revises his stuff, he feels compelled to add more bodily functions into it. In fact, I noted in at least two times with the revised Gunsinger, and in, and in both instances, it made me prefer the 1982 one. In the 1982 one, when Roland first meets Jake and asks him how long he's been at the way station, Jake is sort of like, I'm not sure. In the revised one, he says, three poops ago. That's how I measure things now. And I'm thinking, thanks, Stephen King. Now I'm imagining Jake pooping three times. How lovely. Also, when Roland hypnotizes Jake and finds about him getting pushed in front of the cabin dying, he asks him if he wants to remember this or forget. In the 1982 one, Jake says, forget it, I bled. And I like the simplicity of that. But in the 2003 one, he says, when the blood filled my mouth, I could taste my own shit. Ick. I'm like, did you just have to add that part in there, Stephen King? The same is true of the 1978 stand versus the 1990 version. There are parts where he just adds references to fart and poop that I'm thinking were not at all that necessary. Am I the only one who has ever noticed this? It extends to his movies too, because in the only movie he ever directed, Maximum Overdrive, two characters are in a men's room having a conversation, and for absolutely no reason, there's a dude in the stall pooping, and we get to hear several of his loud farts. I read this interview where King is like, I thought the farting was hilarious. Really? Um, so, okay, enough about farts and poops, because this email is getting way too long. I just, sorry guys, um, just the, the, I'm glad, I'm glad that, that Brett, uh, wrote in, because I've never, never noticed this before, and, um, it is it is pretty ridiculous it is pretty ridiculous um i just want to report to you that you have inspired me to read the dark tower saga and you have also inspired me to start my own blog um here comes a shameless plug that you can feel free not to read on the show if you find it too shameless but i'm going to read it anyway i've started my own blog about my second favorite tv series knots landing I'm going to put up one post per week and slowly but surely go through all 344 episodes of this dynamic show from the 1980s. I'm only up on episode three as of this writing, but my blog can be located at knotsblogging.com, and I would appreciate any support I can get. Thank you, Cy. Oh, yeah, the very last thing I'll say to you before I leave you. I have an idea for what to do after you've finished all the King books. I don't want the podcast to die, although I know that one day it will probably just have to. So why not do these two things? First, go back and make sure that you fill in your Bachman gaps. Um, also, why not cover all the movies? Include the horrible ones in there because it would be fun to hear you riff on them. Let's get some dialogue going on the Rage Carry 2 or Pet Cemetery 2 or Children of the Core 99 or whatever. Why not cover his little seven episodes of The Golden Years? I've always had a soft spot for that one. That's all I've got, sir. Keep up the good work as I'm now a devoted constant listener and I appreciate what you do. Long days and pleasant nights, Brett. Brett, thank you for writing in. Uh, that was great. I loved that email. Uh, so just so you know, guys, in the chronology of this, when this is coming out, or not when this is coming out, but as I'm recording this right now, I just finished my reread of Dr. Sleep right now. I'm halfway through uh, today. I finished it today. I'm halfway through my reread of Joyland, which really means that in terms of the chronological order of publication, I only have Mr. Mercedes and uh, Finders Keepers left to reread. Um, I just, I, I, I reread Bizarre of Bad Dreams a couple days ago. Um, so I'm almost done with the chronological reread. I do have some gaps to fill in, uh, like Brett writes. Uh, I, I, I never read Blaze, and I did not read The, the Colorado Kid. So I know that those are two I'm definitely going to have to get to. I know that I have to do uh, the creep shows. 
And then I was thinking of doing some, some top 10 lists. I don't know exactly how long those would be, but uh, I think that some top 10 lists would be fun. Um, and maybe just go back and, and review some, some of the stories that I, I never reviewed in Night Shift and Skeleton Crew in Nightmares and Dreamscapes, Everything's Eventual, and uh, Just After Sunset. I review all of the short stories in Bazaar of Bad Dreams, uh, so that would just leave the, the ones that, that I, I never got around to. So I mean, th these are all possibilities. Uh, so, I mean, even though I'm coming to the end of the chronological order of publication, I mean, there's still some content that, that uh, I'll be able to put out there. So let's not, let's not worry right now about the end of the, the Stephen King cast. Um, I mean, it will change because, I mean, there's only so many books that, that I have to, to review. But, um, but I mean, there's still some stuff to be said. Okay, so with, with all of that said, I'm going to read the Wikipedia, um, the, the Wikipedia summary for A Good Marriage. After 25 years of a good marriage, Darcy discovers her husband's sinister secret and realizes she's going to have to take drastic measures protect her own grown children from the exposure of that secret. End of the Wikipedia summary. <laughs> okay, uh, so let's do the analysis. Um, so I would say it's a pretty good opening. You know, shot in stark uh, black and white. Um, you know, with Bob being only a pair of menacing eyes following a defenseless woman while... Um, uh, what's his name? The 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 uh, Bolt Ramsey narrating the Hound of Heaven by Francis Thompson. So I would say good opening, good good opening. The story then picks up um, at a party um, with the old folks, specifically Joan Allen as Darcy, clearly happy with her life, her husband, her children. It's a celebratory scene that allows for some bathroom chatter with a recent divorcee who fills us in on the Beatty murders. Also shown to us through the newspaper read by the narrator of the Hound of Heaven section that opened up the movie. During the anniversary party thrown by their daughter, played by Kristen Connolly from the incredibly fun Cabin in the Woods, who gives a speech that includes the theme for this movie of her parents' good marriage, uh, which is then showed to us by the happy and healthy love life of the two parents. Meanwhile, outside, the mysterious stranger smokes cigarette after cigarette, watching their house. In bed, the happy couple discusses Bob's love of coin collecting. Yeah. You ready? Yeah, yeah. All right, it's New Year's Eve. I am off to uh, to do my New Year's Eve thing. So happy, happy New Year's, everybody. Even though when this comes out, that day will already passed. But here's the moment. Happy New Year's, guys. And just like that, it is a new year. Same podcast, new year. Um, and let's see, where did I leave off? So in bed, the happy couple discuss Bob's love of coin collecting. And the next day, everyone departs, leaving Darcy by herself, her children leaving now that the party is over, and Bob heading out for work. Alone in her house, she watches the news that focus in on the beady murders. We get how squeamish Darcy is when the TV is stuck on a horror movie, and she runs out to the shed to get the batteries to change the remote, and there she finds Bob's secret box. Before she does... She hears a knocking on the door of her house, and when looking through the window of her shed, she sees the mysterious stranger who's been stalking them. He leaves, never noticing that she's there, and then she finds the porn, and then the truth about Bob. A box containing the licenses of the BD murder victims. The truth sinks in, and she immediately is forced to have a conversation with him when he calls. Now, Joan Allen has proven herself 
to be a noteworthy actress. But something's up with this performance. Is the director just capturing a hamminess um, in her that, that she isn't in, intending to put out there? Or maybe she is hamming it up. I'm not sure, but while I'm on the subject, let's talk about uh, the director, Peter Askin. Actually, can we talk about Dutch tilts? This is the worst angle that you can use in storytelling. It's an immediate technique that you can use to show um, imbalance, right? So if someone's going through someone or something or is rocked to the core, then a Dutch tilt can create that sensation on the screen. Now, however, I find them to be too on the nose. The fact that they were played up as an intentional camp in the 1968 uh, Bill Dozier Batman television show, it proves that they're effectively campy. So when the director here decides to Dutch tilt the shit out of this movie, I immediately tune out. And if I was still thinking of sticking with it, when he doesn't Dutch tilt, he opts for the zoom in. Anyway, uh, Joan Allen then visualizes the possibilities that come with um, her now knowing that her husband is the, the, the BD killer. Uh, the news report, uh, the, the news reporting her involvement the police rush to her door, Bob killing her as, as well. Um, again, just as with the Dutch tilts and the zoom-ins, the decisions here are the obvious ones, and they come across as two on the nose. Meanwhile, Bob is stalking his newest victim. Bob then returns home and has the conversation with Joan Allen. When this moment hits in the novella, it is a major blow. It completely cuts our legs out from underneath us. It's so matter-of-fact, and it's completely unexpected. Here, I believe that Paul Askin um, wants the dramatic and the undramatic. First, Bob is sitting like a creep in the corner, so he's going for the horror element, and then Bob starts monologuing about his life as Beatty, intermingling the conversation with the fact that she needs an oil change and how many chocolates she's been eating. The attempt is there to keep it matter-of-fact, just another misunderstanding in the long marriage, but it 100% fails to land. First... Anthony LaPaglia seems bored out of his mind in the role, which doesn't help. There should be so much complexity in this scene. Here's a man who both doesn't understand the significance of his actions, yet at the same time, for the first time, is completely unburdened when he opens up to his wife. He is at the same time a monster and a pathetic little boy. He is threatening, um because of his previous actions, but is the most vulnerable person in that room. He is begging for his wife's love and acceptance, both earnestly and because he's selfish. It's a loaded scene, or it should be a loaded scene, and in the hands of another creative force behind the camera, this could be the submission scene for an Academy Award. What we get is a lifetime movie performance that just doesn't end. So when Joan Allen starts crying and begging for him to stop it, I'm pretty sure it's the only authentic performance in this movie and has more to do with the actress suddenly realizing the type of movie she's in than the character having a crisis because her husband is a murderer. They then have an agreement. He promises her that he'll never do it again and that he won't send the latest victim's ID to the police. Life continues. Darcy sees him checking out a neighbor and reminds him of their agreement. Then, during their daughter's wedding... Bob dances with the bride. Through Darcy's eyes, she sees the murderer dancing with a child. She's clearly having trouble reconciling the truth of her husband, but the moment fails to land. Darcy has yet another dream, this time seeing Petra as one of Bob's victims, 
And this is finally what prompts her to take action. She gets Bob drunk after he finally finds his coin. So then here's the moment. The moment when she does what she has to do. It should be like, like everything else in this movie, it should be impactful. I mean, literally. I mean, when he falls, like, it should hurt. It should be wrought with emotion. And it's none of these things. First, it doesn't feel like a big fall, you know. And he lands on the table, which just doesn't look like it, it hurts all that much. And then comes the murder. Peter Askin has Joan Allen become vengeful and hateful in this moment, which is certainly a choice. But seriously, the moment in the novella is loaded with emotion. Despite the fact that he's a killer, this is still the man that she's been married to. She's still murdering the man that she loves. She's simply doing what she has to do, and it hurts. It isn't an easy decision. However, for cinematic Darcy, and that's a term that I don't like using to describe this movie, um, her killing Bob is as easy for her as it is for Bob to kill his victims. Also in the novella, she pushes him down the stairs so it'll look like he got drunk and fell down the stairs. Here, he's pushed over the banister. Which, I mean, doesn't it... I mean, I'm not a cop, but... I, I would immediately assume that he was just been pushed off the banister. Anyway, at the funeral, the absurdity of this movie continues with her meathead son whispering in her ear, Hang in there, Mom. Hang in there? Who honestly says hang in there at a funeral? Especially to the widow of a deceased. I mean, if this was a character tick, if the character was supposed to be a bonehead, then yes, let the character tell the mother, hang in there. But this is a character without any traits. He, like any of the other characters, simply says things. He's a voice just for the script, for words to come out of his mouth. They don't reveal any character. They don't service the plot. They are words to be spoken, and that's all. In the post-Bob world, she's visited by Detective Ramsey, who fills her in. And then, inexplicably... Ramsey has a heart attack or something once he leaves and then Darcy heads to the hospital to murder him So this is where the movie's going And now she has a taste for blood and now she's comfortable killing people This is terrible guys and she doesn't go through with it and I just don't care anymore I know that I'm like five minutes away from the end of the movie, but I'm done. I'm tapping out. I'm done. This movie sucks uh, Easter eggs Shawshank um, Shawshank is mentioned which really only hurts the movie. It's a nice reference, but when you mention Shawshank uh, prison in a movie, you're immediately invoking a good Stephen King adaptation. You know, it can't help but make you compare it to Shawshank. And, I mean, I'm not even going to bother doing head-to-heads um, because it's a clean sweep. The, 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 the movie, it sucks, and the, the novella in every regard is, is better handled. Um... But I want to talk a little bit about Joan Allen, because I don't know what's going on with her in this movie. Because I just watched Room. I don't know if you guys have, have seen it, starring Brie Larson. Um, it's just an incredible... It's, it's full of feelings, guys. I mean, just watch it with a box of tissues nearby, because it's it's, it's gonna you're going to well up. But it's an incredible movie. And Joan Allen doesn't have a lot to do with the movie. She, she plays Brie Larson's mother. Um, but the scenes that she's in... You can tell the complexity that she has in these scenes. So without a lot to do, she's able to do a lot. And I'm just wondering where that actress was during this movie. And again, I don't know if it's either the, just the, the hammy writing or what Peter Askin is asking her to do. Um, I don't know what it is, but 
it's almost like a different actress. And just the, the characterization, I mean, she's just like cartoonish when she sees the, oh, the horror movies on the TV, and she's like, ooh, oh, eh, and she's just, and it, to me, it just never feels real. She just does not feel like a real person, which the whole point of this is to make this feel real, like a real marriage, and hidden within that marriage is this awful, awful secret. But she just always looks like a cartoon character, and her relationship with, um, with Bob never, never feels real, and he... Like I said, he just seems like he's sleepwalking through this role. Um, so I, I don't know. I, I just, I feel like this, in the hands of someone else, this could be an A-plus movie. I mean, think about it. It's something like a Silence of the Lambs caliber thriller. A suspenseful, edge-of-your-seat nail-biter that also grabs the attention of the critical community. There's so much you can mine from this subject matter. Secrets within a marriage. Rather than exploring the horror through everyday, recognizable life moments of a marriage, Peter Askin just hams up the horror moments and isn't able to elicit authentic emotion from his actors. From start to finish, it's campy, it's on the nose, and it's boring. So there's nothing that I could say to recommend this movie to anyone. It is just through and through a pretty bland and cheesy adaptation of what should be um, or what is one of Stephen King's best pieces of, of written work and it's really too bad that it failed to land. So sorry guys, I wish I, I had something better to say about it. Okay everybody, um, so with this done, let's look ahead towards next week. Uh, next week's episode, I will review um, the time-traveling yarn, 11-22-63. I can't wait to talk about that one because it is a phenomenal, phenomenal book. Um, so, may you have long days and pleasant nights, and I will see you here next episode where M-O-N spells Stephen King cast. It's a stretch of road up north in Maine That's never, ever, ever seen a smile And if they buried all the truckers lost in them woods There'd be a tombstone every mile Count them on There'd be a tombstone every mile